Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in your transmissions. I'm This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to show 665. I'm your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. There's a fly in this room, and I cannot find it, and it's loud. So if I start to wonder, what a pain, man. <gasps> anyway, how, how are you? We are, I'm recording this on possibly the hottest day in the UK. It, we've had a string of hot weather. And this one is like a real, oh, a real. So if you're working in the sun or anything like that, just be careful. You know, as, as English types are a little bit prone to a bit of sun. We're not that we're not that used to it, should I say. So please look after yourselves. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have Sophie York with her story, Sleepers which was published in Deep Magic in August 2018. Then, having been slammed to the wall, our very own Amy H. Sturgis has got her looking back genre history out for as well this month. Fantastic! So, I hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So, like I say, Sophie York with the and fantastic... There, it's just landed this bloody fly in its gear. Oh, sorry, Sophie. Anyway, listen. Sophie or Sleepers, which, like I say, was done in Deep Magic in August 2018. Sophie York is a biomedical scientist and writer from Melbourne, Australia. When not working or translating from implications of research into fiction, she explores the world documented with photographs and words. She was former editor-in-chief at SQ Mag. Australian Spectre Fiction Ezine, where she won the Australian Shadows Award for Best Edited Work. Her short fiction has been previously published in Deep Magic and several Antipodean anthologies. Now this story is narrated by Tatiana Gray. Tatiana is a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen and the audio booth. She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damn thing. She went to New York University and lives in Brooklyn, New York. You can find her at tatianagray.com. So, 
the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Sleepers by Sophie Yorkston. Narrated by Tatiana Gray. Regeneration wards were eerie. Darkness broken by pods of backlit humidified tanks and the slow flashes of machine warning lights. The slow gush of air from the life support hissed in the great empty space, and faint dings of active medical equipment punctuated the stillness. The technicians moved between the banks in ordered patterns at regular times, silent sentinels monitoring the healing processes of their patients. Two technicians sat in the monitoring room that evening. On, her long black hair braided back off her face, peered at the cephalic function scan from one of her patients. An alert had popped up, generated by the algorithm monitoring brain activity. She stared at the scan, the different brain areas lighting up in complex patterns, not unlike consciousness. It was unheard of for anyone to return spontaneously from the dream suspension. Switching to look at the electromagnetic signals, nothing appeared pathological. It was just unusual. She wouldn't call the specialist yet. Another alert popped up. Ann loaded the feed on her second screen, thankful to leave the puzzle of the aberrant activity behind her for a few moments. Eyes bright with the monitor's reflection, she observed the second scan, chewing on the end of her pen. Another patient showed similar patterns, somewhere between low-level consciousness and REM sleep. She brought both scans up, watching the neurological activity move in sync across the sulky, the impulses surging through the white matter. The neural activations complemented each other. She felt as if she were watching music for the deaf. The interplay of colors between the two was mesmerizing. Sighing, sure it was a glitch in the system, On reset the feeds and noted it down as part of the regular monitoring procedure. The reload screens dimmed, the eternally spinning circle of her cursor trying her patience. On sipped at her cold and tasteless coffee eyes prickling with lack of sleep. With a flash of color, the image feed resumed, and on froze, the cup at her lips. The activity patterns continued in stereo across her screens. Arthur! She called sharply, waking her colleagues snoozing in the corner. What? He rubbed his eyes and yawned as he walked towards her. Leaning over her, he peered at the screens. His eyes widened, taking in the patterns, the synchronicity of the activations. Thoughts chased one another across his face, his brow furrowing and lips twisting in confusion. I've never seen this before. I've reset the feed, Ann said before Arthur could question her. What do we do now? Arthur stood and prepared to enter the clean room. Gowned and gloved appropriately, he approached the sleepers, as the techs called them. Ann opened the tanks remotely, touch-typing monitoring notes while she watched Arthur's slow and careful movements as he replaced the electrodes at the base of each skull.
failure of the electromagnetic stimulation of the brainstem could allow patients to slip between sleep states, but that was an extremely rare occurrence. As he left the area, Ahn recalibrated the signals, chewing nervously on the end of her plait. Arthur snapped his gloves at the bin and then leaned in too close. No change. Ahn shook her head. A cascade of activity flooded the functional scan, and a thought dawned on her. Are they dreaming together? Arthur's eyebrows rose skeptically. After a long silence, he shrugged. Reaching over and pressing the call button, he said, Time to call the professor. Through heavy-lidded eyes, she looked up at him. Her withered hand reached to stroke his face. She knew every wrinkle around those eyes. She'd been there as they'd etched themselves in. She had watched him change, but not really seen it. Life was so fluid and ever-changing. She barely remembered the smooth cheek that had once pressed hers as they danced. She did remember the soft, strong hands, the ones that had held hers all these years, the ones that had made her dinner, soothed their pets, tended her ailing body, mastered her with the smallest touch. They'd met in their twenties, both wide-eyed idealists, vibrant and heady with life. He was the tousled electronics expert, she the bookseller. He'd told her that the instant he met her, he'd fallen in love with her smile. She'd known she was in love when he told her how he ardently admired and loved her, in a truly awkward, Darcy-like style. Eh, she was a sucker for a classic. Theirs had been an easy love. It wasn't that they didn't fight. They did. She was a little hellcat when incensed. He was rational to a fault, delivering facts in calm, even tones to manage her rage. But not always. She suspected he only let her have her way when he could see she was the most strident in her beliefs. But only if it made sense. For him, everything had to have a reason. With every little part of her soul, she'd loved him. She had loved him when he crumbled, when he was her champion, when he was upset and angry. The play of emotions across his face, the technicolor and speed of them, held her enthralled. Often, when he was thoughtful and far away, she longed to pull him back to her, to the present, and the woman who loved him. They had lived their lives together, swinging dizzily through their youth, not stopping for breath. Their middle years had been times of great discussion, great contemplation. The world had been theirs to explore, chronicle, catalog, and admire. Every step she'd taken, he'd been by her side, holding her firm, but not fast. Now in their twilight age, moving wasn't so easy and amorous intentions remained precisely that. Their love had become a slow burn, instead of the intense flames of passion. Each day, they'd be quietly thankful for another dawn, another sunset, another chance to live. The two of them had only ever needed their first chance, and what a blissful time it had been.
But, as with all things, her body wearied first. Cancer spread slowly through her like the heat from a good scotch, straight into her bones. Aching agony defined her. A pain curled within her, alive and awaking when she did. The analgesics did little. Life was waiting to leave. She could feel it. Stubborn and rational as always, he held on to her, his hand in hers, always by her side. His eyes did not stray to faraway places. He drank her in, water into the lungs of a drowning man. Honey, she whispered hoarsely, you need rest. I'm not leaving you. The grip of his hands tightened. You can't hold me here by the sheer force of your will, my love. Her eyes were gentle as they looked at him, at his distress. Why not? He said calmly. It's been done before. Not this time, she replied. I'm tired of this. Tired of me. The vulnerability in him hurt more than the cancer. She choked on her grief from the look on his face, the crack in his voice. Never. But I don't think I have much of a choice here. His head bowed. She couldn't see them, but she could feel the tears she knew were smarting in the corners of his eyes. Her hand crept into his hair, curling the light locks between her fingers. I'm sorry. She croaked. I'm weak. His lips were papery on her hand. No, you're being the rational one. His golden hazel eyes burned into her. A hand stiff and swollen with arthritis stroked the hair off her forehead. With some difficulty, he climbed onto the hospital bed beside her, his arms wrapped around her like they always had. Together, they fell asleep. Her breathing getting shallower with each inhalation. The chief of medicine peered at the readings on display on the wall. She looked to her colleague, one of the foremost specialists in regenerative medicine. I know we've discussed this in brief, Professor, and it is truly astounding. She skimmed through her readings. But it is also, quite frankly, a worrying turn for the practices of this ward. The regenerative wing of the hospital was one of the front-runners of its kind. By suspending patients in a dreaming stasis after severe trauma and stimulating the brain's electrophysiology to induce sleep patterns, it provided time and freedom from pain to heal. The practice had revolutionized medicine worldwide. The laboratories had come into service in the last ten years, and she was by no means an expert on the practices of this type of medicine, but the synchronization of neurological readings between patients was a strange development. The integration has been happening for about six months, the professor said. There has been no significant change to the regeneration of either patient. What else is their data showing? The chief asked as she flipped through the electronic report on her tablet. We can see the patterns are reactive, appearing with a microsecond delay between the two in a back-and-forth responsive sequence, like they are talking to each other. I've also sought some second opinions, the professor continued. 
but none of my colleagues have any other theories. The chief ran her fingers through her hair, perplexed. When are they due to be revived? Uh, the female patient is due out tomorrow, the professor answered. The male patient, not for another week, but his healing has accelerated to a point where I believe we will have to bring him out in time with her. Is that possible? I thought the removal occurred over a week. Not always. Sometimes the patient exceeds our expectations, or asserts themselves to hasten the process. The extraction from the dream state is a quicker, more uncomfortable, and unfortunately unavoidable. I think we're going to need legal in on this the chief commented. Regeneration wards were not intended to be interactive. If these patients have experienced dream integration, and if it becomes apparent to have been in any way detrimental, we could be in for some legal trouble. There's no indication of distress, chief, the professor said, but I will brief legal and get their opinion. He straightened his coat and cleared his throat. There's also no precedent, no way we could have known that this was possible and prevented it. We still have no theories on how it happened. I don't know that a precedent matters, the chief said with a sigh. Let's bring them out of the tanks together. I'd like to see if they remember. Chronicle everything they do and say once they are out. A professor, and provide them with whatever documentation legal suggests. Get them to sign it as soon as they are well enough to. The professor nodded. The chief returned the curt nod, excused herself, and walked away, astounded by what she was witness to. It defied all her medical training. He woke, and she was gone. The woman he had loved since he could remember, always and without cease, was cold and lifeless next to him. There was no world left for him without her in it. He got up to press the buzzer, his left arm shooting with pain. He rested on the side of the bed, waiting for the pain to subside, but it worsened. He pressed the buzzer. The nursing staff came in, asked him questions. His answers came out garbled. The pain intensified, and he gasped, sliding off the side of the bed and into blackness. She followed the light to the end of the tunnel. Gently, Voices called her name. Soft bells chimed. Was this to be heaven? Her eyes opened wide to stare at the off-white sterile ceiling. Beside her stood two strangers, garbed in more white. Her heart raced. She started to panic. What was she doing here? Where was she? Alarms sounded. The woman next to her talked softly, slowly. There's no need to be distressed, Marie she said. You're in a hospital. There was a plane crash. You've been here in the regenerative ward for the last 12 months. Marie searched her memories. They were full of him. Quiet Sundays in bed, his figure occupying a portion of her photographs, sunshiny days on picnic blankets, all the dullness of shared domesticity. But that had been a fiction, a dream. She began to remember her real life, her nondescript cubicle office, the quiet but homey apartment filled with her books and odds and ends. 
The phone calls with her mother asking whether she was seeing anyone, and the inevitable soul-sucking speed dates she pushed herself into afterwards. She remembered every part of her comfortable but lonely life. There was a flash of the crash, snippets of screams, fire, a great shuddering that ended in a slamming, screeching, ripping of metal, darkness, smoke, and then nothing. Marie's eyes burnt with welling tears. The wonderful life she'd lived had been nothing but fading dreams and shadows. She'd rather have died. I don't want to be here. The technician knelt before Marie, placing a warm and comforting hand on her knee. Post-suspension depression is common. It will only last a few days. She flipped her long braid back to reveal her name tag. On. I had my perfect life, Marie whispered, and now it's all gone. After some physical checks, the technicians helped Marie from the tank and to her feet. She stood beneath the shower for as long as she could stand the heat and sobbed. Water pooled at her feet, and she watched numbly as it slid away down the drain. When she was clothed, the technicians sat her in a warm but sterile room, to allow her to get her bearings. Life felt like a pale and unfamiliar shadow. What do you remember? On asked. Oh, nothing of importance, Marie replied. On wrote some notes in a file and tried to hide her disappointment. Marie sat unattended for a while. They brought her documents to sign, a legal release for the hospital, negating all responsibility for any wrongdoing in regard to her care. She sighed. The world was still cold, unwelcoming. At the end of the document, Marie paused over an unusual clause regarding fraternization between patients. She wasn't sure what they thought she'd been doing while unconscious in a tank, but signed anyway. Another person entered the room and sat opposite her. A magazine page turned. Someone choked and then stifled a cry. Maybe the technician didn't lie, she thought. Maybe it is like this for all of us. She lifted her head, hoping to catch the other person's eye. A page turned, and the movement stirred the air. She caught his scent, his skin, his hair. The man sitting opposite looked up from the magazine, Familiar golden hazel eyes stared back at her from a young face. His hair cropped close, a light stubble darkening his jaw. Her voice trembled as she dared. Peter? Marie. Within a second, he had crossed the room and gathered her to him. Tears spilled out onto their cheeks and laughter from their lips. His hands pressed against her wet face as he kissed her again and again. And they definitely never met each other, the professor queried. Through the window, the congregated staff watched, amazed as the couple grasped each other's hands across the table. Never, Ahn answered. From different worlds, in different cities, different accidents, months apart, the probability is highly unlikely. The specialist nodded at Ahn and turned to confer with several doctors invited to observe the reunion. Sensing her dismissal, Ahn turned away.
Real life for the dreamers. She murmured softly to herself and quietly shut the door of the observation room. There you go. Huge thank you, Sophie. Thank you so much indeed. And Tatiana, thank you. Always always a pleasure. Thank you indeed. Right then, like I say, our very own aim, she... Busy, busy month, this busy month. Slammed against the wall, up against the cold face. All those kind of scenes when you're just so busy, but has finally got, not saying finally, but has finally getting around to doing the best thing she does. Looking back at genre history. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. I have been doing some research and some work, and not going to lie, I have fallen down a couple of rabbit holes that I think are just absolutely fascinating. And so I thought I might share with you a couple of the cool things that I have discovered. Okay, so a little context. I am doing some work on an emerging, or I guess the better term would be exploding, (laughs) sub-sub-sub-genre of fiction that is right now in the midst of an amazing moment, and that is called Dark Academia. Now, the literature about it, that is the scholarship, the academic work, is just now kind of gearing up. So that's right, I am diving in the middle of it and planning to take part. But There are some challenges, and one of those challenges is that there isn't a real consensus about what dark academia is. It's one of those things where people sort of say, well, you know, when you see it, it's, it's, you know, you know it. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is generate a working definition that is useful and I'm still in the process of doing that, but where I am right now, one of the the sort of placekeeper definitions people use is some idea of a campus, faculty or student, past or present, murder, right? Now with more gothic flavor. And the campus, by the way, could be high school, it could be a boarding school, it could be a college or university, that really varies. But there's a lot more to that. I I am looking right now at gothic tales related to academia, student-centric or faculty-centric, dark campus tales, stories of students or research gone awry, toxic elites and gatekeepers, secret societies and experiments, forbidden knowledge, cults of personality, you name it. And a lot of these works combine multiple genres. So there are science fiction works, fantasy works, horror works, mystery works, crime, thriller works, and many of these combine a variety of those genres together in this kind of campus story. One of the reasons I'm enthusiastic about really hammering out a good working definition is that although the term dark academia is recent, if we start thinking about the ingredients that go into that, if we can agree on a kind of template, we can look back and see aspects of dark academia that go much further back in time than we might imagine. Of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, for example, Frankenstein, for example, has aspects of dark academia in it. So that's one of the things I'm working on right now. And it's also a little 
fascinating that dark academia has been taken as a term not just to apply to literature or literature and film, but to apply to other things as well. There's currently quite a lot of interest, for example, in the idea of dark academia fashion and aesthetics and you name it. So I'm very interested in this. And I do want to point out that although retroactively applying this term will bring up some interesting, I think, science fiction examples. You don't have to go very far backwards to find science fiction examples of dark academia. One I would highly recommend, which I thoroughly enjoyed and found utterly fascinating, is a new work, a 2020 debut novel by author Elizabeth Thomas called Catherine House which was an Edgar Award nominee for Best First Novel and is currently a Ladies of Horror Fiction nominee for Best Debut Novel. This book is a lot of things. It's a gothic tale, it's a mystery, but it is also science fiction. In fact, while I'm talking about it, let me just give you the official description. Catherine House, a story about a dangerously curious young undergraduate whose rebelliousness leads her to discover a shocking secret involving an exclusive circle of students and the dark truth beneath her school's promise of prestige. You are in the house, and the house is in the woods. You are in the house, and the house is in you. Catherine House is a school of higher learning like no other, hidden deep in the woods of rural Pennsylvania, This crucible of reformist liberal arts study, with its experimental curriculum, wildly selective admissions policy, and formidable endowment, has produced some of the world's best minds, prize-winning authors, artists, inventors, Supreme Court justices, presidents. For those lucky few selected, tuition, room, and board are free, but acceptance comes with a price. Students are required to give the house three years, summers included, completely removed from the outside world. Family, friends, television, music, even their clothing must be left behind. In return, the school promises its graduates a future of sublime power and prestige, and that they can become anything or anyone they desire. Among this year's incoming class is Inez, who expects to trade blurry nights of parties, pills, cruel friends, and dangerous men for rigorous intellectual discipline, only to discover an environment of sanctioned revelry. The school's enigmatic director, Victoria, encourages the students to explore, to expand their minds, to find themselves and their place within the formidable black iron gates of Catherine. For Inez, Catherine is the closest thing to a home she's ever had, and her serious, timid roommate, Baby, soon becomes an unlikely friend. Yet the house's strange protocols make this refuge, with its worn velvet and weathered leather, feel increasingly like a gilded prison. And when Baby's obsessive desire for acceptance ends in tragedy, Inez begins to suspect that the school... In all its shabby splendor, hallowed history, advanced theories, and controlled decadence might be hiding a dangerous agenda that is connected to a secretive, tightly-knit group of students 
selected to study its most promising and mysterious curriculum. It's good stuff, I'm telling you. It's good stuff. Okay, so I promised you a fascinating rabbit hole to fall down, (laughs) so let me get to that. In doing some of my research about some of the foundational texts of dark academia, by the way, the genre does include quite a lot of works that would be probably pretty familiar to people who like speculative fiction. Picnic at Hanging Rock by Joan Lindsay from 1967 is a good example of that. But in looking at some of these foundational texts, I came across a really interesting, disturbing, X-Files-worthy mystery that inspired two of them. The first of these two works is Hangs a Man from 1951 by the great Shirley Jackson, author of We Have Always Lived in the Castle and The Haunting of Hill House and so many great, great works, and of course, The Lottery. The other is a novel that's often credited as being the dark academia book. 101, the place to start to learn about dark academia. This is the one that did it. And that is The Secret History by Donna Tartt from 1992. Donna Tartt also being the author of The Goldfinch, for example. Now, both of these novels have something really crazy in common. Shirley Jackson's husband was a faculty member at Bennington College in Vermont. Bennington College in Vermont is where, in fact, Donna Tartt studied and graduated. And both Shirley Jackson in Hangs a Man and Donna Tartt in A Secret History pulled on an inspiration, a common inspiration that you could say, because it influenced both works, is in a sense part of the foundation of modern dark academia itself. And that is the story of, the real story of Paula Jean Weldon, an 18-year-old, a student at Bennington College, a sophomore who one afternoon set out for a hike on the nearby Long Trail which was a very popular hiking spot, and in fact, she was seen on the trail by other hikers. She went out for this hike on December 1st, 1946, and was never seen again. There was a massive search for her, a huge, for the time, reward issued for any help in finding her. There was assistance from the FBI. No trace of Paula Jean Weldon could be found. But it gets even stranger, because Paula Jean Weldon was the second of five disappearances in the area. In fact, this area has now been dubbed the Bennington Triangle. New England author Joseph Citro, during a public radio broadcast in 1992, called this area of southwestern Vermont the Bennington Triangle because of the number of people who went missing between 1945 and 1950 there. This is an area that includes sort of Glastonbury Mountain and the Long Trail there and includes parts of Bennington, Woodford, Shaftesbury, and Somerset. And by the way, to make this even more creepy, that area of Glastonbury and the township of Somerset, 
basically today ghost towns because the logging industry that made them has now essentially disappeared, and so there is nothing there, which makes this even more bizarre. But to go back to the Bennington Triangle. Here's the way the popular accounts of the stories go. There were five disappearances. The first of whom was Middy Rivers in 1945. He was a 74-year-old who was a guide. He was leading a group of hunters on the mountains. He barely got ahead of them and disappeared. Within minutes, they were where he had been. And again, an extensive hunt for him. Found no body. The others who disappeared were James Tedford, a veteran who went missing in 1949. He was strangely enough on a bus that was headed in that direction right before the last stop, arriving in Bennington, and somewhere between the last stop and Bennington. Tedford just vanished. His belongings were still in the luggage rack. There was an open bus timetable on the seat that he had been in that was now empty, and there was no explanation for how he got on the bus but never got off. He was just simply not there—a real X-file kind of story, at least according to reports at the time. Then Paul Jeffson in 1950, an eight-year-old. Who also disappeared? He was sitting in his mother's car as she had left it to feed some pigs, and when she came back, he was not there. And the last disappearance was only 16 days later, in 1950. 53-year-old Frida Langer, a hiker who was mid-hike. Slipped, fell into a stream. She went back to her campsite, or that was her plan, to change clothes and then catch up with the other hikers. And she was never seen at the campsite. She was never seen by the other campers again. There was an extensive search of the area, and then a year later, in 1951, her body was found in an area that had already been extensively searched. And the condition of her remains meant that no cause of death could be determined. She was the only one whose body was found of these five. There are a whole lot of other mysterious things connected to this area, including missing time and hallucinations and all sorts of things. And there's no shortage of information about, and paranormal spins on, and local lore and rumors and reports about this Bennington Triangle. For example, the William Shatner program Weird or What had an episode, season three, episode eight, first came out in 2012, called Mysterious Vanishings, and it focused on the Bennington Triangle. The events were also discussed in episode sixty-seven of Lore, called "The Redcoats," and it's been featured on paranormal TV series. For example, "Most Terrifying Places in America," which was on the Travel Channel in twenty eighteen, and as you might imagine, the podcast sphere is all over this. Some from a paranormal perspective, some from a creepy stories perspective, and some from a true crime perspective. But what I find fascinating is that there was a real life disappearance 
of a sophomore student from Bennington College that was part of this larger phenomenon, right in the middle of it, and yet also a unique tragedy for that school, something that the local paper, the Bennington Banner, has discussed on more than one occasion, how it then came to be some of the DNA baked into dark academia through novels like Hangs a Man by Shirley Jackson in 1951, and then uh, 41 years later, The Secret History by Donna Tartt. I am fascinated by local lore and connections between strange and mysterious events that become then part of the fabric of storytelling. That's just sort of a an intellectual history thing that I, I really enjoy. And I was fascinated to find this common thread in some of the origins of 20th century standards of dark academia. So, hey, thanks for giving me the opportunity to share. And on a more serious note, the disappearance of these five individuals and the death of at least one only one that can be proven. These are terrible tragedies for these individuals, the people who loved them and cared about them for the communities. And so it's important to remember there are real people behind these stories and real unsolved cases that are still begging for resolution and for justice. And that's important. That's very important, too. I hope you are safe and well, you and your loved ones, and I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different when we take another look back at genre history. Thank you. There you go, Amy. Thank you so much, lad. Oh, big hug, big hug, lass. Thank you indeed. So that is the show. Yes, 665. Here's a little thing for you. Today is my last full-time shift. Yes, going part-time, semi-retirement. Now, would you believe, we're all right with Starship Sova, but with my main job in the water industry, I'm going part-time. And it's been five years in the planning where me and this lad at work, a gentleman at this work, we've both decided to do it, so we've now become one. And they've had to employ somebody else, and now... In my shift, it's like a work of art when you see it. So basically, I'll be three days on, four days off, three days on, ten days off. Little cycle like that every time. And then I'll be three days on, four days off, three days on, ten. <gasps> hey, do you have me? So yes, today is the last, my last full day of working now in the kind of and who would have thought, man, when you think about it, you know, I mean, I was just a pup when Starship Sofa's now I'm coming seven seven retired, man. When Starship Sofa started, God, we were just like twinkled in Dad's eyes, and you know, what I mean, it was such a brave new world out there when with like podcasting was. And mind you, honestly, the early days of getting podcast now, it was unreal how complicated it was. I mean, this is how just just for you kids out there. Gmail wasn't you, you had to get invited in a Gmail had just kicked off just this within like a year maybe six months and you had to have an invite in which even just use the, the the Google Gmail do you know what I mean and it was just RSS feeds and I, and I couldn't you know I couldn't work them out and thank God someone else a little bit cleverer than me did and we just kind of 
delivered the content, me and Kieran, for those first ones. And then actually it was Amy as well. I'm getting all emotional, all emotional. Right then, until next time, look after yourselves, take good care. Thank you for listening. Anytime soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home With nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I wanna talk to you I wanna talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there.